Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Dogma Disrupted, where we look at modern ideologies in light of the Islamic worldview. And we are very, very pleased to have with us as a guest today, Dr. Zara Khan, uh, to talk about human rights. Uh, Dr. Zara Khan is a specialist in this field. Her doctoral dissertation is called Refractions through the, Sec through secular, through the Secular Islam, Human Rights, and Universality, which questions the universality claims of human rights. Now, this is going to be extremely significant for us. We have future episodes lined up that are going to be about uh, women's rights, feminism, and then LGBTQ rights. And I think it's fair to say, and, and Dr. Zara, you can correct me, that almost all rights claims uh, currently are, are either built upon or indebted to in some sort of way. Uh, the idea of human rights. So the discussion that we have today is going to be really, really essential to unpacking other things down the line that are affected by human rights discourse. So the first sort of thing, I guess, to start off, Dr. Zara, um, what are rights and where do they come from? Mm -hmm. alaikum I'm really happy to be here. Alhamdulillah. Um, what are rights and where do they come from? It really depends on who you ask. So if we're talking about universal human rights as a discourse and a practice in our postmodern time, that's, that's one way of talking about it. What are the theory, um, the norms, and, uh, and the history, right? The history of where this discourse comes from. And then if we talk about, you know, as Muslims, what are some of the basic foundational um, concepts that underlie our understanding of what rights are, rights and duties, that would be another way of answering the question. So let's do um, because, you know, dogma disrupted. Uh, we're trying to find, you know, as far as I understand, um, what parts of human rights can we appropriate as Muslims fruitfully and beneficially for ourselves, our communities, as well as human beings at large? Mm -hmm. And which parts are harmful to the full practice of our faith uh, and to society and to the global civilization? So in order to kind of separate the harmful from the beneficial, I think it'd be important to look at both conceptions uh, side by side. So we can start, you know, um, with Surah Al-Nisa. Allah says in the opening ayah of this Nisa, you know, uh, oh, you humankind, revere your Lord who created you from a single soul and from it created its mate, uh, its pair, and then disseminated from it all men and women. And Allah says, you know, continuing in this ayah, that revere Allah by whom? you ask one another, right? In whose name you demand your rights from one another and revere the blood ties and truth is uh, all watchful over you. In Allah kana alaykum rakiba. So this is the foundation of where we understand rights. It is in the name of Allah that we demand our rights over one another because Allah being the source of all life, um, being the source of you and I, uh, being the source of society and different human nations created to know one another, uh, on this transitory life of this dunya, Allah is the locus of our mutual rights, right? And then from here, you know, just recalling that Allah's, one of Allah's beautiful names is Al-Haq. In this name, we have, you know, the truth, the, the barometer of what is true and false, the Haq and the Batil, rooted in this one of Allah's beautiful names. And at the same moment, rights. Haq is the right. Mm -hmm. uh, the Hukuk are the rights. And you know, in, in the Islamic tradition, uh, and I'm not an expert in this area, but I know that um, the interpretation by the Fuqaha, the interpretation by um, philosophers like Ibn Tufayl in his work, uh, Hay Ibn Yaksan, which is a very different state of nature picture than we get from Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, we see that this concept of rights as rooted in, in the creator of all things has had a, uh, an interpretive history. And in the, from the very first century of Islam through the, the ninth century of Islam, uh, with the Shahab al-Din al-Qarafi being kind of the, one of the big proponents of this, we have the idea that Allah has rights, the hukuk Allah and the hukuk al-Ibad. And this was a juristic device that was developed in order to balance, you know, the private interests of individuals and, and then the public good, mm -hmm. right? What good in society? How do you put the moral fabric of society? And I think it's important to point out for our discussion today that this is an additional framework that the jurists developed, right? They have their fiqh, um, they have the interpretation of their principles based on methodology that's established mm -hmm. to interpret sacred texts into positive rulings for society, to uh, adjudicate our social relations and to lay down uh, principles governing ibadat. But an additional language was needed 
on the ground, so to speak, so that the public um, could understand and embody the fic that was being generated. And so this Hukukullah and Hukukulabad gets developed in order to, um, to, to let that be translated to the mm. bigger society. And, and I think another way, if I could just insert real briefly, I think, you know, a lot of people misunderstand the works of the scholars in sort of like a very stark binary of, well, this is revelation and then this is not. Well, there's also things that are implied in the revelation that need to be spelled out by the ulama, right? So I think what, what you're talking about here, the hukukullah and the hukukulibad is something that is uh, implied, right, uh, within the Sharia and in the Qur'an. And therefore, when the scholars sort of start talking about it, it's not that they're inventing something new, right? Mm -hmm. It's something it's they they are clarifying something, or they're making perhaps explicit something that was implicit, right? Or they're sort of organizing or categorizing things that maybe were disparate and dispersed. Would you say mm -hmm. that that's that's fair? Jazakallah khair, Imam Tan. Absolutely. Um, when Ali anhu was accused of not ruling by the Quran. You know, uh, he he responded, "It's a book between two covers; it doesn't speak." Obviously, mm -hmm. you know, not implying that Allah is not speaking to all of humanity through the eternal word, the Quran, but implying exactly as you just um, elucidated for us that it is the job of the human beings and the people of knowledge in any time and space, knowledge of law as well as a fact, right? A, fa mm -hmm. a fact um, to come together and renew the understanding of the meaning in every new history context and to kind of employ the the language of the time and language you know language is not just grammar and vocabulary and syntax language is uh values and action and the language of any people will show you upon study what is valued how it's valued and in relation to all the other values mm -hmm. and so use the, the language of our time to to uh to speak the principles of islam in a way that will be coherent to the people Right, including ourselves, because we are also of our time and our place, um, and and the message is universal. And so there's always this dialectic, as you were uh, just explaining. And and these jurists, with this with this kind of uh, classical Islamic scheme of hukuk al-Allah and uh, hukuk al-Ibad, um, they used naturalistic reasoning, right? Because we're talking about human rights in our mm -hmm. 2023 context. It's based on natural rights and this paradigm mm -hmm. in natural rights, mm -hmm. and so. These scholars also used naturalistic reasoning mm -hmm. to make this additional framework, um, and and so let's continue with the with um. I mean, if you if you if you want to kind of switch over now to what how the rights schemes have developed in the in the West, we have a sure. Um, if I could just add to your to your argument there, actually the ayah that you mentioned, and I wasn't even thinking about that. I'm really glad that you started with the first ayah of Surah Tanisa, <clears throat> because there's actually two. Um, locations or sources from which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala points to us deriving our, our rights. He says, he says from him, right, which you identify, but he also has, he also says, well, arham, right, which is a really, really interesting addition in the ayah that basically you appeal, what do you appeal to in order to claim your rights? That's kind of like the question behind the ayah, the, the, the ayah. And the first thing is you appeal to Allah. Okay, it's like so you understand from Allah his reality, the content, what we know who he is. You use that to appeal to each other to get your rights. And also al arham, right? Your sort of your your kinship bonds or your your relationality or something like you know, we could argue about how to translate it. But I find that very interesting that it's not necessarily the ex Exclusive, maybe the relationship between the two, one is derivative from the other. We could say that the rights that we appeal to each other through our kinship ties is derivative from the ultimate reality of Allah. But it does show that there is sort of this second domain there that I think a lot of people would probably locate in some sort of natural rights framework that has to do with there's an implied understanding that because we're family or we have some sort of kinship, that that would entail some sort of right. So I just found that really interesting, and I never thought about it in that way before. So I, I thought it helped your your argument um, before you get into sort of where maybe I'm guessing we're going to the Enlightenment and where sort of the human rights discourse sort of developed from there within the Western European tradition. Um, so, yeah, back to you. Yeah, no, mashallah. Um, you know, Allah's name, Arman, and then the, the womb of the mother 
is derived from the same word as Allah's most beautiful name, Ar-Rahman. And um, not only to indicate the mercy that all mothers have for their children, and of course, this is um, this can be renewed in its relevance uh, specifically to historical questions of, you know, is abortion going to be the next human right? Mm. Uh, understood, right? Socially right. understood. Right. Where where the right of a, a of the the locus of mercy for human society, the mother, has the quote unquote right to terminate a child, uh, you know, without without cause, you know, without a medical, mm. cause, you know. Um, so I'm I'm really glad that you brought that up. And there's you know the book of Allah is is the Quran and His eternal word, and then there's the book of creation, which is also full of ayat. And right, and a third of the proofs in the Quran seem to come from this book of nature. And and uh, certainly the mother's womb as the as the focal point of our social, of our kinship ties, right? Which then extends into extended networks and social ties um, is certainly uh, among the sacred signs of Allah. So I'm, I'm very thankful you brought that up. Um, and we see the difference with the, with the Western conception of rights and even in the Western conception of rights, and I'll outline a few of the major um, key moments, right? The key highlights and the development of this concept, but it's, it's also not a single story in the West uh, there's also been, for example, the, the you know, from Plato um, and the classical Greek thinking and the early Christian theologians, right, say Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine of Hippo, um, there was one way of thinking about rights that was perhaps closer uh, to the Islamic understanding of Allah mm. being uh, central and important and, uh, you know, really the, the location of our rights over one another mm. versus what happens um with the movement away from that in the West, right? Mm. So there, there are multiple trajectories even in the West. Mm. Uh, so one has triumphed largely over the other, but nonetheless is, is part of the legacy of that Western uh, rights tradition. So you have this scholar out in uh, UCLA, Anthony Pagden, and he points out that with, you know, going back to ancient Greece, antiquity, which Western civilization claims as its uh, ancestor, as its rightful ancestor, even though there's a whole lot of... Uh, historical issue it's very anachronistic to do that you know mm -hmm. more of a narrative building than 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 simple historical reality right yes a hundred percent um that ancient world that mediterranean universe didn't belong more to you know what would later become known as europa than it did to what would later become you know nubia and, and egypt and sudan you know like mm -hmm. it to, it was its own thing, and later uh, Europe, and there's a book, The Myth of Hellenic Ancestry, uh, that mm. kind of, why this was done, how it was done. But anyway, um, the Western uh, civilization and philosophical domain says, okay, ancient Greece, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, this is our birth home. And um, Pagden points out that these great uh, thinkers, that they never expressed right, the, you know, the huck as something distinct from justice. This was actually mm -hmm. part of their um, scheme work, yeah, framework, excuse me. And mm -hmm. so if you think about uh, Socrates' concept of justice, it's like our concept of adab, right? Adab occurs when everything is in its proper place in relation to everything else. And that was his definition of justice, right? Everything being in its proper place. There wasn't this idea of kind of standalone, independent, uh, atomic rights that individuals have in a vacuum. When you continue um, from ancient Greece to ancient Rome, you have this idea of the use, right? I-U-S, still a word that's very much used in law and international law and in legal theory. And the use also was not natural or universal, but it was constituted in the society. Like you were just mentioning about the, the ties around the womb, right? The ties of kinship. It's constituted by the social relation. It's not something that what Dalal Asad calls like it's a free-floating signifier, right? It's it's mm -hmm. rooted in the social fabric and the social network. And then with the Roman Emperor Justinian in the sixth century, he introduces a change where he uh, creates what we call not creates, I'm sorry, he mm -hmm. articulates and codifies what we now know as natural law. Mm -hmm. And natural law is considered to be <laughs> and um, not necessarily, you know affected by the historical and the particular social realities. The Christian uh, theologian, St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, a couple of centuries later, he Christianizes Justinian's natural law. And, uh, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas was famous for his uh, hierarchy of laws. And so you can see that for a Christian theologian, 
to incorporate an appropriate natural law, he did it in a way that made it consistent with the Christian theology, right? Which is that the divine law is supreme. There's a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And then it is the natural law, which is kind of like the ayats of Allah, as you can observe in nature. And then beneath that is the law of, the, of man, right? Positive mm-hmm. law. And in order to be just, our law has to be consistent with the, the two that come above us. When you enter now, as you mentioned, uh, that I was going to speak about the Enlightenment, when you enter into the age of modernity with uh, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, here you've got the radical departure, right, from the previous Christian and uh, classical Greek way of understanding what rights are. And with John Locke um, and, and, and Hobbes, they paint a very strange picture of what the human being supposedly is before we enter into civilized society, right? Mm-hmm. Very dark picture of your throat. State of war, right? And sort of every every man for themselves. Everybody sort of locked in existential struggle against the other. Precisely, mm. yeah. No security, no high culture, certainly. Um, and so, rights here takes on a very superficial, uh, a very shallow. It's just the security of person and possession, basically, which mm. is modern liberal nation state is built upon this idea that your most fundamental right is to be safe in your person and your property. Mm. That's about. No kind of loftier uh, signifier attached to what the basis of society is. Mm. And here you've got Hugo Grotius, um, you know, who actually influenced John Locke and uh, who himself was influenced by uh, Shaybani and his famous treatise, Asiyar, where, where uh, the first kind of international law treatise was actually written by a Muslim, um, who then influenced Hugo Grotius to write his Freedom of the Seas. Um, but Grotius also um, puts down this very thin vision of what constitutes rights. And here you've got the rise of this freestanding individual. In the West, when you look at these political philosophies that come up in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, laying the groundwork for the Enlightenment, you see that the individual is um, the most important unit in Mm. all society and in all life and thought. And the individual whose origins are obscure, right? Some of these thinkers said that, you know, Men, men and women randomly meet in nature and they, you know, a baby comes out of that, the man is gone, the woman raises a child for a few years and then she too is gone. It's a very different vision of where we come from. Like what is the story uh, in the life of this world? And yes, it's metaphorical, but it's very important and impactful on subsequent, you know, understandings of, well, who are we? Why are we here? And what rights do we have over one another? Mm. Yeah. I mean, when you first mentioned that to me, I first go to, it's almost an evolutionary sort of scheme, right? Um, you've got, uh, and, and this is maybe, uh, maybe it'll, it would take us too far afield, but if we're looking for a common thread, right, between, let's say, the Greek tradition and the Islamic tradition and even the Christian tradition, the pre-modern sort of way of thinking through rights without, you know, homogenizing and saying there's no differences. Of course, there probably are. But I think that what you're telling us is that the idea of the human being is one that's very situated, right? One that's very enmeshed in a divine relationship. And that um, that divine relationship both gives identity to the human being, it gives purpose to the human being, and it also, you know, downstream of that influences what even makes sense to talk about as rights. Whereas the big departure from, from what you're telling us is that, you know, the enlightenment kind of decontextualizes the human being and takes them out of that necessary um, divine relationship. And it's really the other thing that occurred to me while you were talking was uh, Marlowe's um, or Maslow, sorry, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Like we say that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the first thing is food and security. And that's at the bottom, that's basic. And that's something that's so um, it has proliferated so much in even popular culture. I hear Muslims talking about it all the time, but it's actually a particular anthropology, right? That's being assumed there. And, and what we mean by that is a particular definition of a human being where the relationship with the divine is kind of something extra or excess or not, uh, not essential that it can be added. It can be subtracted. It can be there or not there. What's real capital R real is the material. The food, the calories, <laughs> the the safety, uh, and that's a significant, significant departure. Um, so fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, do do go on. Yes, Barakallahu uh, Imam Tam, and I'm familiar with um, some of your work, so I know you're um, 
kind of looking at the roots and, and the foundations of some of the modern beliefs and ideologies. Mm -hmm. And that's really, um, very important I kind of get at those roots. And so you're absolutely right to point that out. You know, men like uh, Hobbes and Locke and Grotius, they specifically articulated that religion can't be the foundation of human laws, mm. right? This is their in their own words. I'm not extrapolating. Um, whereas for, for Muslims, you know, the, the sanctity of the public space is one of the hukuk Allah, right? And if you look at Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, at his uh, work on kind of the essential arts that all human societies um, have always produced, you know, what is civilization and what is it made of? Society has a sacred value. Mm. And it's not just because of our mutual needs, uh, but he also kind of goes up the hierarchy, you know, that we, we farm and we have crafts and shelter and textiles to clothe ourselves. And then eventually politics is the art of happiness in this world mm. and the next. So the purpose of political society and the reason why you work towards it, you know, through thinking and through act action is in order to create the conditions that will allow the most number of people to be happy in this life, our material needs being met, um, and the moral fabric of society being intact, and in the next life, right? Because that would also be, you know, among the good deeds that, inshallah, we can carry with us. And so that's a very different vision than um, what political society is understood at coming out of this natural rights mm. and you know, French Revolution, Enlightenment, American Revolution, all the way up to the 20th century. By the time you get to the 20th century and you get to the First World War, Second World War in Western civilization, um, after World War II, there is, a, uh, there is a need for a consensus, right, among the, war, the countries that have exited the Patriotic War. And they, um, that there's a conservative and a Christian democratic hegemony. Mm -hmm. And they land on this new type of national welfareism because at the end of World War II, and you know, you've got the United States and the Soviet Union are locked in the Cold War, which is this humanitarian struggle for what is going to be uh, the reigning ideology after this, this battle is lost and won. And the countries of Western Europe, they arrive at uh, national welfareism. The, na the nation state has won uncontested as the political form. Nationalism has won as the uncontested ideology that's going to carry forward. And so what's missing is now like the, the internationalism. Right. And you'll notice that then outside the West, uh, the non-West, you know, all the subaltern countries, the colonized countries, they're not really too interested in the in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights mm -hmm. because it is very specific. It, it, it's speaking from a certain group of people in Western Europe. Yes, they've got signatories from other countries. You know, they brought in the Lebanese Christian and they brought in some South Americans. But really, uh, those were political elites who didn't necessarily represent um, the best interest of most of the world at the time. So most of the non-West in the 1940s, when the Universal Declaration on Human Rights is being uh, articulated, uh, prefer things like the Atlantic Charter, the Bandung Conference. They're, they're focusing on things like self-determination because that's their reality. Mm -hmm. And then that's a small group of political elites in one part of the world, you know, the, the part that has um, come down this historical trajectory of Western civilization, Enlightenment thought, French Revolution, um, and they've got a specific vision of what it means to be human and what the rights of these humans are and vis-a-vis -vis whom. Human rights are just like the moral law of the state, right? It's rights that you and I can hold against our countries. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's not anything more um, profound than that. Um, you know, all that being said, uh, it's not something to just throw away. I think it's something to consider critically and understand historically. Uh, there's a lot of currency in the language of human rights today. It has a legitimacy and we can use human rights in our verbiage if we use it intelligently to uh, make claims, right? And seek protections mm -hmm. for people. But to do it in a way that we understand that uh, this is not universal per se. There's right. a lot of challenges to the universal mission of human rights from societies all over the world that say, well, this is not us. This yes. doesn't. Yeah, no, those are that's a lot uh, to unpack. And we I do definitely want to get around to thinking about how, first of all, the justification for appropriation, because that's something that there's not a consensus about um, sort of some interesting conversations that have that have that inform that and then how that could be done. But before that, let's talk about that human being. So first of all, well, there's two things I really want to talk about first, just to fully flesh it out for the listener. First is 
what is that definition of human uh, that's in the quote-unquote universal human rights? And how is it different from what Islam says? Or, or what does it leave out? Okay. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the divine embodiment and these sorts of things. Um, and then secondly, what are the implications of sort of this one particular uh, sensibility of what the human being is and therefore the rights that, that, that derive from it? What's the political sort of implication of the political elites, mostly based in Western Europe? taking it as universal and going and saying that, well, this has to be the standard by which the entire world has to judge um, who is basically doing the right or doing the wrong. They're, they're doing good or they're doing bad. And maybe foreign aid is tied to it. And maybe you get invaded if you don't. Right. So I want to tease out those implications too. But first, let's just, just to sit just for, for another moment, what is being left out in the idea of what is human in the human rights frame that Islam says, Hey, wait a second, that's got to be back in there. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the, that's one of the right questions. Who is the human of human rights? Right. And this is where we find some of the issues and problems with fully appropriating this discourse, because we can't sign on um, to some of these implications. So the interesting thing is that in human rights language, who is the human being is a negative space. It's not answered. And this is deliberately, um, it's an agnosticism translated into a political theory, right? And this is done on purpose. And you've got um, all the kind of big uh, theorists of universal human rights, Jack Donnelly, James Nichol, Alan Geworth, all this kind of literature and corpus of uh, theorizing says, you know what, this is exactly what is needed. We need to be able to come up with a human rights framework that does not uh, subscribe to any particular philosophical anthropology, which mm. is big for theory of the human being. Mm. And they um, devote pages to affirming that this is why human rights can work for everybody. Mm. Because we don't espouse any specific philosophical belief about the human being. Any, any person from any society following any religion uh, and having any historical background can, can sign up and sign on, right? And basically get down with human rights. And here is where a lot of challenges are brought because just to, just to have this absence in identifying the human of human rights doesn't make it go away. There is an actual um, set of implications about who the human being is. In my own kind of uh, work, and I'm not a specialist of human rights in the broader sense, but one of the areas that I uh, looked at was the freedom of religion norm. And, you know, this is a norm that gives uh, people living in different states, any country that's a signatory to human rights treaties can uh, evoke these rights against their state, right? Uh, the freedom to practice a religion of their choosing, um, to assemble with others and congregate and have acts of worship and holidays and ritual practices. So it's, um, it's very important and it sounds good. And I myself, I've met uh, Muslims from, let's say, Dagestan who, um, who don't enjoy those privileges, right? So as an American who's always um, critical, uh, sorry, I'm not sure if you can still see, okay. Um, is my camera still good? Yeah. Okay. Okay, as you know, um, someone who's kind of always critical of, of liberal states and American politics, when I meet Muslims from Dagestan who can't even, the men can't wear beards, the women can't cover themselves in specific ways because it's illegal in their country, um, it, it helps me to appreciate some of the religious freedom in the United States, right? I don't have those problems. My husband doesn't have those problems. Um, but who the human is in the freedom of religion norm it's basically the idea that religion is something that is not embodied, but exists in a very disembodied uh, level of the consciousness only. So religion has to do with economics and politics and social fabric. Religion is just me in my conscious mind. Uh, my beliefs, you know, um, don't tell me what to think. Don't tell me what to believe. It's the morally autonomous human being not even a human being who should rightfully go and advise other people, you know, not, we're not talking about forcing other people into religious belief. We, mm. you know, we do that as Muslims, but not even to advise others, right. That would mm. kind of, um, 
uh, the norm of a liberal vision of human being. So again, as you were mentioning, you know, cut off from social ties. And some of the challenges, when we look at the challenges that have been brought against universal human rights in the last couple of decades, um, the, the big one is kind of the Asian values challenge. And this was um, 1993, 1995, you have the Bangkok conference. You have almost 40 countries from Asia and the Pacific region who signed this document. And they find, uh, they find it hard to appropriate universal human rights because they focus too much on civil and political rights and not on economic and social rights. And from an Asian values perspective, really um, for a person to have an economic safety net in society is much yes. more important than whether or not they're voting in the midterm elections or not, right? Sure. It, it just didn't make sense for certain societies. Their from, from my understanding, countries like the United States who you know maybe fearing something like communism or socialism have continuously vetoed or voted against or lobbied against the inclusion of those types of economic rights in, in more universal sort of... Um, right human rights documents right so so just to, to flesh things out for the listener like so for example maternity leave right to like to, to the idea that maternity leave would be a human right that you or or even let's be more radical and let's say a woman's right to not have to work right which is something that uh islam espouses could that be a human right right if it were at the floor of the un the u the u.s would definitely throw its veto around and say no way we need that body working producing wages that we can tax and you know etc cetera, etc cetera. um so that's what we're talking about we're talking about what gets included as a right depends on our definition of who's of what's who's a human in the first place and what are what's entitled to that human being um and there's one really interesting thing that that subhanallah when you were talking it reminded me of it's almost like there's this catch-22 because and uh, you know you and i are both indebted heavily to Esed, and, and Esed points this out is that in order, you're appealing to the state to get your human right, or you're trying to claim your right from the state. However, you depend on the state to define and to execute and to guarantee that right. And yeah. so um, that's a whole other can of worms to explore how that happens. Because, you know, um, for example, religious freedom is a really, really sensitive thing. Um, and I'm sure maybe this is where you were intending on going, but written into the language of the right, the universal right to religious freedom, there's that important except, right? That but clause where it's like, except for what the state deems, whatever the language is, national security, I can't remember, you know better than I do, but it gives that escape hatch because we depend upon, at least in the way that the modern sort of world is situated or configured, we depend upon the modern nation state to, to execute and guarantee those supposed human rights for us, the, na the nation state actually gets to decide what those rights look like, whether it looks like the religious freedom of France or the religious freedom of Dagestan or the religious freedom of the United States of America. Um, mm. I'd really like your, your comment on that. And then, but just so that I don't forget, a lot of people, you know, your, your comparison of, you know, the freedoms that we have, um, you know, to, to exercise our religious freedom in the United States, very, very, a great thing that both you and I <laughs> rely heavily upon. Right. Um, and we are humbled when we meet people from other parts of the world that don't have those same freedoms. These things are often rubbed in our faces, right. By saying, it's like, oh, you're so critical of the United States. Or you're so critical of the West. And yet here you are breathing our air freely and doing this sort of thing. Um, is it attributable what what do we attribute that freedom to? Is it the state? Is it a culture, right? Because you know there is also a negotiation. There's a very different tradition of religious religiosity and religious freedom in the United States than there is in France. Uh, I know I'm opening up a lot of threads, but if you could if you could talk to to both those things. Yeah, and you know you're, um, all these threads are interconnected, so it's you know they kind of uh, mutually lead into one another. But um, it's so it's both. It's the particular character of the state. You know, the United States is a uh, is a welfare state, and that is a particular interpretation among the liberal democracies that are industrialized in the world of what the responsibility of the government is towards vulnerable people mm. that live that live there. Um, with respect to the interpretation of the relationship between state and religion. 
you're absolutely correct to point out somewhere like France, right? There is a tradition. I know that we um, think about uh, in the modern world, we think about tradition in a very um, in a very negative way, right? Uh, not as Muslims, we have Islamic tradition and we kind of understand that the past is always present and we draw from uh, the, the, the wellsprings of the past, right? But if you think about politically, tradition is understood as, um, can be understood as like antiquated and no longer relevant. Um, but we have traditions of secularism differently in different countries. In the, in the United States, we have a, a certain pluralism that developed as a result of migration patterns and the way that the government, which was uh, the government of elite landowners, was made up of people who had, for different political reasons, um, they had cause to allow for religious pluralism for the economic prosperity of the nation. And it took kind of, you know, John F. Kennedy became the first Catholic president. And I think after that, everyone calmed down about the last bit of anxiety about pluralism. Um, but in France, where you have the laïcité, kind of tradition. Olivier Roy, I think, points this out in his work, where he compares the different secular models uh, in different countries. Secularism confronts Islam in a very different way, as we've seen from a lot of the contentions of violence against Muslims in, in France and um, banning the, the Muslim swimming dress at the beach, at the public beaches. It's a very hostile attitude towards religion in general which in the United States, you don't have that tradition. Nowadays, we have an increasingly secular culture and post-modernity, and there's only one way to be a good Muslim, and that's if you don't really care about Islam in any, right. in any way past Ibadah. Right? Yeah. Like, like, you don't interpret your works in the world to be part of Ibadah. That's a good way to be a Muslim, mm -hmm. uh, increasingly in an in increasingly secular culture. But in France, it's much more hostile um, from, from the very beginning. So their interpretation is gonna, is gonna vary. So you're, you're definitely right to point that out. And among all these challenges um, to human rights, what you see is that communities across the world are, and, and I'm gonna return in a minute to your point about the, the rule of the law and how that's a paradox for, for the human rights model. But um, you know, even in India, you have uh, kind of critiques coming to universal human rights that says, you know, there's an emphasis on the nuclear family, but that's not how we operate. Right. There's family in India, in much of traditional India uh, and Bangladesh, right, and parts of Southeast Asia that are not extended family kin networks. And that is the only way that social and political and economic rights will make any sense. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at like marriage laws, right, like the idea of consent, it's very, um, it's very different, differently interpreted. We know what we believe in terms of like consent is necessary for marriage and kind of what are the ways that that plays out and who is the wali and what role does the wali play in the mm -hmm. contract, the legal contract of a marriage. But in, in a place like India, where Muslims are a very large minority, that's not necessarily the case. They have their own understanding of how marriage um, kind of interacts with these extended kin networks. Uh, child labor has been another um, contention and, and contest that has been brought against universal human rights. Um, People younger than 18 in many parts of the world absolutely must work for uh, villages and societies and families to to survive and thrive. And it's part of how knowledge is passed down from generation to generation. I don't mean to say that we uh, overlook and excuse gross violations of human rights with respect to childhood. That's not what I'm implying at all. But rather that um, that this is not a universal one size fits all cookie cutter mm -hmm. type of vision for who is the human, what are the rights of the human and um, you know how can this be imposed upon different societies? Now you mentioned also that this there's this catch twenty two and this paradox. And um, I know Imam Tam that you're very very uh, well versed in the work of Wael Halak, and he is uh, the one who really kind of doubles down on this idea that the the modern state has its own metaphysic, right? It exists only for its own sake. It can um, command us not only to kill for it, but to die for it, right? When you think about war, sending people off in uh, fighting national wars. And the state is really the actor in human rights. The human is the supporting actor. And mm -hmm. it's when they sign up, they sign their names on these treaties and they affirm a document that they say, we promise to protect these rights. Now, uh, human rights does not have an enforceable mechanism, right? The United Nations has peacekeepers, 
not an army, which is probably a good thing because human rights can turn into politics by other means, right? And we can we'll uh, talk about that in a sec. That was going to be my next question. Yeah, segue to that for sure. But you know, there's there's no enforceable mechanism, and and um, instead, what you have is the promise that states will uphold. Now, states have shown themselves. Look, coming back to freedom of religion for just another minute here, um, that they will enforce it differently. So you've got a number of cases in Europe where, you know, individuals can take their uh, grievances against their states who are not upholding their human rights. They can take them to the International Court of Justice, to the European Court, and they can say, my government has violated this law, you know, this human rights law that it signed its name on. And you have uh, instances where Christian symbols, like wearing the crucifix in a school, um, have been allowed and wearing the hijab has been forbidden. And these are, you know, in Italy, in Turkey, in Switzerland, you have a number of uh, case law that was brought to the international court in Europe. And the court says, and this is what you were mentioning earlier, that the state has discretionary power, right? And it can make exceptions to these norms, freedom of religion norm, other types of norms based on safety and security and the moral, uh, the moral good, the public mm -hmm. good, that is extremely loose to, for an open for interpretation. So. It it basically, and and that's I guess where where I'm going at least, looking at how do states weaponize uh, human rights discourse against their own populations and against populations abroad, um, because uh, yeah, well, I mean we have especially post. 9-11 war on terror like these sorts of things i mean it's basically become uh the grammar by which people justify their various sort of polit political machinations um but i'll i'll leave that to you so this is exactly what is meant by uh human rights as politics by other means you know people say war is politics by other means and that is certainly true uh but what it means to say that human rights is politics by another name is to say that um that the powerful uh, impose their will and impose their influence and coerce other people uh, through the language, through the legitimating language of human rights. Again, not a reason to throw human rights out the window altogether, but we have to be aware of how and when this occurs. So a couple of examples. Um, I think the most glaring example would be uh, the quote unquote humanitarian intervention in Afghanistan right after September 11th mm. was articulated almost entirely um, other than, you know, they hate our freedom and kind of nonsense like that. But it was, it was articulated entirely for the benefit of the women of Afghanistan yeah. who for 30 years before September 11th had organized themselves to try to kind of, uh, you know, live dignified lives with respect to some of the excesses of the Taliban regime. And there was really no care or consideration for their issues and how they were identifying what was most bothersome to them. It may or may not have been the burqa, right? It may have had more to do with school and literacy, access to healthcare, uh, freedom from poverty, freedom from, you know, um, lack of access to drinking water and things of that nature. But Laura Bush, you know, um, comes out and basically uses the women of Afghanistan, her sisters from across the ocean as the reason why her husband is gonna launch this despicable campaign um, in Afghanistan and destroy a country that was already uh, on the brink of humanitarian disaster. So that's one way in which human rights verbiage. Uh, and I must I must point out uh, with the particular uh, example of Afghanistan. By the way, if anybody's interested, there's a great article by um, co-written by Sabah Mahmoud and um, Charles Hirschkind um, about the justifications um, for the invasion and the bombing of afghanistan in the in in the wake of 9 11 and particularly the um the complicity of the feminist movement uh mm -hmm. with this particular um military operation which I, I have to point out here because there's sort of a very um a very crude take right that if um you know uh, let's say that if feminists ran the world or and this will be a whole other episode that we'll get into feminism and, and sort of gender and, and those related issues but there is an argument within within feminist circles that 
you know, if feminists were in power and if feminism were taken seriously in a structural way that the world would see less war, et cetera, et cetera, there would be more justice. There would be less sort of egregious uh, violations of human rights and, and whatnot. And yet we saw, and it wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last time that feminists were on the front lines when it came to justifying uh, the invasion and the aerial bombardment of Afghanistan. Um, with uh, using the language of human rights, using the language of, of women's rights as that sort of, as you said, legitimizing discourse is like the providing the justification for the violence on other people's bodies, lives, and entire worlds. Um, so that's that's something we have to take extremely, extremely seriously, like with when this stuff falls into the wrong hands. Were there any sort of other uh, comments either on that situation or, or other examples that you had called to mind? Yeah, and I mean, it's a, it's great that you're pointing this out because that legitimation, that discourse, right, and, and the public opinion that's formed by, you know, now by influencers, maybe not so much in 2001, um, but, but that kind of uh, community and consensus around these issues and the way that they're portrayed becomes a very important factor in the legitimation and the currency of the discourse itself. So, uh, those those uh, women and those feminists who I, I I would say that they were um, guilty of an uncritical thought process, not necessarily a malice like the neoliberal kind of neocons who they looked at Afghanistan. What they saw was the pipeline to the Caspian Sea that was going to let billions of barrels of crude oil get pumped out of there every day with low cost to them. Those women who said, you know, um, we have to do something for our sisters in Afghanistan. Let's just say their heart was in the right place. But they, but but you're right. There was this complicity, right? And you did have some outlying voices like you know Zilla Eisenstein and others who were like, no, war is bad, and it's going to be it's going to make their lives worse. Uh, and and the neoliberal world order, and we can't be duped. But but certainly um, even even with torture in Abu Ghraib and and uh, Guantanamo Bay, the same kind of um, and you know li liberal political actors are not are also not one single group with groupthink. They also diverge sometimes. So you did have many people who thought that it was um, when some of the worst excesses came to light, of course, everybody was kind of shocked and ashamed. But you did have many kind of justifications that said, you know, um, in the name of national security. And, and there's this long and sordid history. And uh, Joseph Massad shows this in, in his work, Islam and Liberalism, where this concept of women's rights as humans' rights, as human rights, it really becomes very popular and really kind of blows up in the 1970s and the 80s. Um, and it starts to pose all kinds of woman questioning, like women questions uh, in exclusively Western ways and, and imposes upon women in other parts of the world the same issues that, let's say, women in the West experience and says mm -hmm. this priority. These are their priority issues. And, you know, people like Jandar Mahanti have pointed out that this is a pretty much an imperial project um, doing this. But Western hegemony kind of in those situations, and, and when you look at conferences like Vienna in 1993, Cairo 94, uh, Beijing 95, these international women conferences in the 90s really became a, a popular vehicle for expressing some of these ideas. It was just a way of Posing the woman in Western ways, and then um, providing in some way a legitimation for military humanitarianism, which is what the campaigns in Afghanistan were. Um, they were called humanitarian, but it was a military campaign, and it was just militarism, uh, capacity building, and um, empowerment in civil society, that these become like code words for spreading the neoliberal economic order. And these kind of movements, they don't really take economic issues into consideration. And that's really where neoliberal world order operates first and foremost. Um, human rights plays a role in this because it mm. provides the, um, the language. Mm. And that's yeah. a really fascinating thing to think about what you just said, because we had started on the point that the um, you know the, the folks in the lab behind the human rights discourse, attempted to make it philosophically neutral, right? Attempted to make it something that could be universal. Surprise, surprise, it's actually extremely particular. Uh, it's extremely European, it's extremely elite, okay? And it's not only 
being wielded and used against people that don't fit into its definition of who is sort of this human normative human being that they have in mind, right? Right. Um, but it's also doing work to try to produce that type of human being, right? That's fascinating to me. Like you, you take the the women of Cairo or the women of of Afghanistan, and it's not it doesn't it's not neutral as to um, you know who's the better who's fully human, right? I think that's that's the question that is the provocative way to to put it. Uh, and that Esad kind of uses that language, right? If you have two women in Afghanistan and one of them is making, is is calling, to, again, full circle, calling to their rights to be honored by the the first verse of Surah Nisa, right? Appealing to their rights through Allah and for the arham, right? The, the natural sort of kinship rights. And you have woman number two who's appealing to human rights discourse, to gender autonomy, to moral autonomy, individualism. Uh, universal human rights is not neutral as to which one of those two women is more human, right? And mm -hmm. that's the scary thing. And, and actually it will fund education, you know, and it will, it will actually even drop bombs sometimes in order to sort of uh, favor one over the other or to produce one and to sort of marginalize the other. Yes, Oof. you're. is right. You're absolutely right to uh, to point that out. And um, you know, you said that uh, pr producing the right subject, right? And uh, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, may Allah bless him, he he looks at um, Europe, right? That's his kind of uh, context and his uh, specialization in terms of like immediate political history. And he shows us that. The, you know, in these Islamophobic times and this uh, anxiety over immigration over the last several decades, you see a pattern in the European governments with respect to um, changes that have been made in how people will migrate to those countries from Muslim majority lands and the types of immigration tests that they're now subject mm -hmm. to. So you were talking earlier about how human rights are weaponized, right? So um, in addition to what Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad has shown us is that now it's your opinion on gay marriage that is mm -hmm. amazing right? in terms of, you know, you, you said who is fully human, but we can say who is fully fit to be a subject of the United Kingdom, the United States, right. France, who is fit to be a citizen. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, ever since the French Revolution, uh, Declaration uh, on the Rights of Man and the Citizen, increasingly the rights that you uh, have as a human are only coherent within the democratic republic mm -hmm. and who can have even their citizenship revoked if you're looking at programs like prevent and programs like cve who now becomes the legitimate target of state surveillance state violence right like these like it's it's scary stuff but it's true is that uh, the human and the fully human and the subhuman right mm -hmm. it kind of falls along the lines that are laid out by the human rights discourse um, so, I mean, we've, we've covered extensively the, the seedy underbelly of, of human rights discourse, but, um, we promised that we would finish on opportunities for appropriation. And I think that is interesting. So I, you know, one of the, I think the entry point for me into this conversation is that I happen to have two interviews in one week, one time, one was with, uh, Dr. Shadi al-Masri and the other was with Yasser Qadi. And we were talking about they, they said completely opposite things when it came to uh, politics in a secular democracy. We're talking about the need to be consistent, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, Dr. Shadi was kind of saying, look, there's no need to be consistent, okay? You can use secular politics. You can use, I think in this case, the human rights discourse, even if you have criticisms of it, even if you completely believe it's a bunch of baloney or, you know, whatever. Um, and then Sheikh Asher Khali was saying, on the other hand, it's like, no, we have a duty to be uh, consistent and we have to be um, sort of adhering to all of it or none of it. And so I want to sort of, uh, I hope this isn't an imposition, see if, you know, uh, indicate if it makes sense to you. But if we're so critical of human rights as an enterprise, as a discourse, as a tradition, okay, do we have a warrant and do we have a justification then to use it sort of to our own ends, uh, so to speak? That's the first question. And the second question would be, well, what would that look like? If, if the answer is yes or under certain conditions, yes, then what are the opportunities for using human rights discourse? And I guess the final thing would be then what are some things that we have to be careful of 
um, while using it so that we don't end up reifying some of the problems with it. Mm -hmm. That's a a great way to end. Um, So I would say, yes, absolutely. Um, True knowledge is the purview of the believer, right? And within human rights discourse, you find uh, truths that you can you can uh, get behind as a Muslim that, you know, the dignity of the human person, mm. right? We've got the book on that. And so certainly if we find small quotations of that truth in other people's discourses, even though those discourses have foundations that mm. are agnostic and philosophically uh, incompatible with our broader beliefs as Muslims, absolutely we can appropriate that knowledge. Why not? Uh, but, you know, I'm, that's just my kind of understanding and perspective. And I'll give a few examples. Um, to illustrate why I think that has to be done. Um, number one, you speak to people in a language that they understand. And again, mm-hmm. going to my earlier remark about what language is, it's not just you know um, the vocabulary that we're exchanging right now and the rules of grammar, but it's the values. And people uh, value human rights as a discourse universally, even if they're not fully uh, comprehending its total, its totality, right? Mm-hmm. They still, mm-hmm. we can, and we ought to get behind it and use it where it's appropriate for us. So um, in the case of Palestine, right, mm. he would really come out openly and say that uh, human rights is not a legitimate way to measure mm. if there is justice or injustice in a specific political conflict. Um, you know, when I was in Palestine, I did some field work uh, many years ago. Uh, we found, I found and documented all of the ways that the Israeli occupation of the West Bank in, in a couple of cities, Ramallah and Jerusalem and Nablus and Jericho, how those violations, uh, how the Israeli occupation was violating in everyday life, the, the covenants that the state of Israel had been a signatory to in mm. international mm. That's a valuable exercise, right? right. It's a way of um, making a claim mm-hmm. and, and knows you know uh what's going to happen and and mm-hmm. and real disregards the human rights of palestinian people openly and right. has no name. so you're um, kind of saying that if if i can i can translate you're, you're basically saying that we're almost calling on people to make good on their own commitments right it's like it's like you guys are saying that you believe in human rights well here's an inconsistency i'm asking you based off of what you've signed up for yourself to fully to more fully embrace or to practice this particular thing and that doesn't contradict me maybe on the side or in a different venue uh problematizing human rights discourse writ large but you know um instrumentally or we could say uh strategically right Mm -hmm. i might call upon people to make good on their commitments and promises that's kind of what you're saying exactly yeah that's that's the more concise way of putting it um and and i think that both are necessary right to be critical of the discourse where we find harm in it is necessary and to be affirming of the discourse where we find good in it is necessary because it's not like black and white, right? It's not like pure harm and pure benefit. A lot of times like in, in the political realm, you know, um, not in a sacred text, but in the practical lived reality of everyday life, um, you find the, 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 the harm and the benefit are often intertwined. And so when we do these both exercises, we're helping to separate the, the, the wheat from the tear, so to speak. Um, There's two yeah. really interesting examples that may or may not fit uh, actually from the seerah of the Prophet that, that this reminds me of. And, and one of them is the boycott in the Meccan period, right? Because you have sort of, um, you know, the, the Muslims kind of betting on the Quraysh being people of their, of their word. Right. Um, in, or, or actually, that's the second example I'm thinking of. When it comes to the boycott, particularly, you're actually sort of relying on their tribalism. Right. And Islam has deep, trenchant critiques of tribalism. However, what was sort of scandalous about the boycott during the Meccan context was that you've got people that are boycotting people from their own tribe just because now they've accepted a, diff- a different faith. Mm-hmm. And so you actually had a lot of grumbling and a lot of people that were like, wait a second, this, this doesn't feel right. And there was actually eventually even some popular pressure on the chiefs of the Quraysh to end the boycott because they felt uncomfortable. So it was almost this interesting sort of thing. Well, yeah, we're, we're definitely criticizing tribalism. But at the same time, there's a way in which we're going to use the ascribed to tribalism of these people against them in some sort of way. Um, mm-hmm. 
and the second example is um, when the when in the in the Medinan period when the Muslims march on Mecca to make Umrah, right? The Prophet ﷺ gets his dream, and he goes <laughs> unprepared, you know, not ready for a battle, right? Just with complete tawakkul and, and trust, and shows up and he puts the Quraysh in a super awkward position because their entire political legitimacy is based off of receiving the pilgrims and facilitating mm-hmm. the, the pilgrimage, right? Mm-hmm. And even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah At-Tawbah especially like blasts them for their, their hypocrisy in this and their, you know, sort of um, it's all for show, et cetera, et cetera. Like they, they lost the plot. They, they, you know, neglected the main thing, which was to worship Allah alone. But basically the Muslims are almost betting on, you know, obviously they're trusting Allah, but they're almost betting on the Quraysh's own sense of their commitment to facilitating the pilgrimage to not basically just slaughter them in broad daylight. Um, so I don't know, you know, Allah knows best whether when we do these sorts of, uh, analogical reasoning, if that actually fits the situation or not, but it occurred to me, it occurred mm-hmm. to me that it could be an analog of sort of, you know, you're, you're trying to appeal to people where they're at, you're using the good parts of what they're at least aspiring to, um, mm-hmm. in order to try to eke out something that is in the end just. Mashallah. Yeah, no, I hadn't, I hadn't considered that, um. Mashallah, but the political lessons for us from these uh, illustrious stories, there's so much potential there. Um, it, it, as you were speaking, it reminded me that uh, how Allah in the Quran, forgive me, I can't give you the, the, the exact place, but um, refers to the, the people of the book, if only they would follow their own law. Uh, right, so no. Probably, again, not an analogy that fits precisely, but in terms of the way we're thinking about the broader principles. Um, right. Yeah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is like criticizing their hypocrisy. And it's, that's not to say that those laws are valid today. They've been abrogated. But the point that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making in that ayah is that the fact that they're not applying their own law shows their hypocrisy. Because at that point, the people of the book were coming to the Prophet for a ruling. And then they would pick whatever was easier, <laughs> the ruling from their own book or the ruling that, that was given to them by the Muslims. And so there's, you're right. I mean, there is this sort of um, instruction to at least demonstrate your sincerity by being consistent and making good on the things that you are sort of ascribing yourself to. That's pretty mm-hmm. fascinating. So in, um, the, in the same vein, the legitimacy that the human rights discourse enjoys universally today mm-hmm. can be used uh, to speak against the excesses of military uh, in Palestine, right? Because in areas like education, I mean, that is a a good any Muslim can get behind. People have a right for their schools not to be dismantled. People have a right for access to health care to not be systematically barred. People have a right for water sources to not be barred. Mm-hmm. Uh, or Right? Th- that's something any right. uh, any person yeah. of conscience, let alone person of faith, uh, would be able to kind of support and advocate. And the human rights language provides us with some of the ways of doing that and saying to a government like that one, um, at least be consistent mm-hmm. uh, be sincere in your in your outward uh, expressed commitment to some of these human rights norms. Yeah, no, that that's completely fair, and that makes total sense. So, is there anything? Um, and I guess the last point, then we should probably wrap up. Is there anything that somebody who's engaged in that work of deploying human rights selectively should be aware of? Um, is there any pit, potential pitfalls? Are there any like minefields? Like, how could it go afoul? Um, human rights non-governmental organizations work all over the globe, and mm-hmm. they're very um, specific to the places where they are offering very particular services, like you know micro loans or um, working to regenerate land that is no longer arable. So I don't think there's a single pitfall I could um, I could share with you. Uh, it would really have to do with your community of mm-hmm. ad and kind of the specific historical conditions and material conditions of the place where you are working. In general, I think that the intellectual history of Western civilization and um, Western philosophy and political theorizing would be um, a good supplement. And I'm saying that because it's my area, right? So it's the only thing I can speak of, but it can help to provide a bigger picture. A lot of times um, living in a liberal democracy like the United States and uh, being a part of these universal discourses like human rights, maybe we've all learned to not dig deeper or maybe not to 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 not take things at a surface level. 
like we, we accept the universal, right? The universal says, hey, this is for everybody, all times, all places. And I think learning to sometimes uh, problematize that through education, not just for the sake of problematizing it, right? Not just to mm-hmm. say anything is wrong and anything feminist is evil and anything this is that. Like that's very uh, binary Manichaean way of thinking. Uh, but instead to kind of uh, read into things and, and look into primers and that can help someone who's interested in doing that kind of advocacy to get maybe a bigger picture of some of these underlying questions. Who's the human being? Some of these existential questions that lie at the center of those. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a really great place uh, to end it. And um, I have to say it's very enjoyable. You know, I'm also political theory background, my first background. So um, it's rare to find someone with such similar <laughs> with such similar research interests and, and training. And this is a very enjoyable conversation. And I hope we have uh, many more, inshallah. So uh, thank you very much for, for your thoughts and a lot to think about. And I think that this conversation will really, really inform some of the other conversations that we hope to have on this podcast. And when we get into the details of other things that are dependent upon the human rights framework, such as women's rights and feminism, such as LGBTQ and and rights surrounding that. Um, so again, thank you very much. Jazakallah khair for having me. Amin wa That's all for this time. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, and we look forward to our next episode. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika shara wa la ilaha anta astaghfiruka wa tubu ilaik. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa